Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the latest ianabernethy.com podcast. Uh, First thing I want to talk about is our podcast top 10. So as you know, in October of last year, the podcast had been going for a decade, (laughs) which is amazing, you know what I mean? It's a a, a decade of... uh, Martial thoughts. So thanks so much for support of them. You know they they're, they're still popular, and even the old episodes are still getting plenty of listeners. So so yeah, ten years, ten years of podcasts. So what I asked was, I asked everyone to write in with what their favourite podcasts were. You know your top ten, top three, top four, top five, whatever it was. And then what I did was I compiled all those together to create a top ten. What I aim to do with those top ten is put them written versions, written versions of the the podcasts. Um, along with, you know, some photographs, some new illustrations, rewrite them, add some little bits to it. But, you know, those themes to put them together into a, a book to celebrate kind of 10 years of the podcast. And obviously it'll be on the topics that you guys all enjoy. So some of them, the podcasts have been made into articles. Uh, most of the ones that made it into the top 10 have never been released in written form. So I think it'd be nice to kind of capture that, you know, written versions of them. And as I say, I'm going to rewrite them, add some illustrations and stuff so we can better explore the, the concept. But these were the, uh, the top 10. Okay. So, um, just outside the top 10 was a warrior's view of fate. That was number 11. Uh, number 10 was the Martial Virtues and Warrior Ethics podcast. Number nine was the case for Keon. Number eight was Itosu's 10 Precepts. Number seven was One Step Sparring. Number six was the 20 Precepts of Gichin Funakoshi. Number five was the Kakapo Doll podcast, which I, which I was, uh, I, I see I did that podcast, just a, a, a fun idea, but it seems that it, it struck a chord with a lot of people and people seem to like it. So yeah, 10 years of podcasts and that one made it into the top five. So that's, that's great. Uh, number four was my stance on stances. Uh, number three was the Occam's Hurdled Katana podcast, uh, which is that was a favourite of mine as well. Uh, number two was Context, 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 which I, you know, I'm really pleased about because, as you can tell from the title, I think that's a, a fundamental thing that martial artists tend not to get, the importance of context. So the fact that that was uh, number two was great. And number one, perhaps unsurprisingly, was the Martial Map uh, podcast. So I mean, that was... That's, uh, a long one that one as well so that will um this will be a thick book <laughs> um, now from my point of view i was surprised that the meaning of pinan uh didn't make it into the top 10 uh that was the the podcast i put out where i explained that pinan didn't mean peaceful mind was uh almost certainly meant um safe from harm within the, the you know the context of which the chinese reading of it so that was the context in which itosu would have given uh, the name to the kata um of its time that was one that you know generated a lot of traction but i think that the view that pinan means safe from harm as opposed to peaceful mind is just now maybe so widespread when we listen back to that it it doesn't seem surprising anymore and the other one that i was surprised didn't make the uh, the kind of top 10 was the karate's three biggest mistakes one again you know it was one i was i was particularly happy with uh, and again it may be because those mistakes are a little bit more self-evident than the people may, may you know do of course those are errors that we all make which maybe wasn't the case at the time the podcast came out. So anyway, that's our top 10. So it's a great format for a book, that, because we've got Funakoshi's 20 precepts, Itosu's 10 uh, precepts as well. We've got to talk about uh, Kion. We've got to talk about stances. We have to talk about all the different approaches to Katabunkai, the hurdled katana one, uh, all the different types of violence and conflict because of the martial map one and the context one. Uh, We've got, you know, I will sneak... Um, the Warriors view of fate in there as well. Um, so we'll put that in as an appendix maybe because it didn't quite make the top 10. And uh, the Martial uh, Virtues and Warrior Ethics one was a, a popular one and there was quite a few people who suggested that that needed expanded in some literary way. So um, so yes, yeah, so thank you. Massive thanks to everyone who contributed to that. I say I'm working on it now. I'm having to listen to a, a few of the old podcasts and transcribe them all and rewrite them. So um, hopefully, you know, in before the year's out we'll have um, uh, a uh, book there which will capture all these topics that you've enjoyed listening to me talk about so thank you everyone for that really appreciate it so the theme of this month's podcast a bit different from normal because as you know pretty much all of the podcasts are uh, monologues um, from from me uh, with occasional ones where I've been interviewed by other people uh, which we've included but I've never interviewed anyone myself so and this is 
what I've been wanting to do for a while is, you know, so Peter Considine, Ninth Dan, uh, well regarded in the practical karate world, the karate world, you know, self-defense world, you know, really well regarded guy, you know, one of the leaders of the, the reality revolution, if you like, and one of my own uh, most influential teachers. And train with Peter, you know, on Thursday mornings, and often me and Peter are normally the first two there, and we'll chat away, you know, about various topics. And I keep thinking, man, this is such a good conversation. And he comes up with these insightful thoughts about, you know, martial arts and self-defense and the way that should be practiced. So, I, you know, I decided that I wanted to record one of them. So I'd had to pop into the BCA offices for a few other little bits and pieces. And while I was in there, I said to Peter, when I come, shall I bring the uh, microphones and we'll we'll record one of our conversations? So that's pretty much what we did. I, I made a slight error with the microphones. I was so excited to be talking to Peter uh, that I only knocked uh, one of them on. <laughs> so uh, what's it, which is fine that the, as you, when you listen to it, the, the quality is not quite as good as I would like. Sounds a little tinny. But nevertheless, you can hear uh, every part of it. And it's so much information in there. It's, it's so in-depth. Because Peter's just got this such a wide range of knowledge. And when we finished the podcast, what Peter said, he says, you know, if there's any elements of this that people want me to talk about further, he says, if they let you know, we'll get together again and we'll do a follow-up one. So uh, I'm going to do a few more of these, I think. You know, interview and talk to people that I've worked closely with and, and, and I think have um, got a lot of valuable things to say. So I won't be doing too many but I will definitely do some more because this one came out great and I'll certainly be doing some more with Peter so um so well, yeah so what I'm going to do is we'll do a little bit of uh, Peter's background for you first for those who don't know about Peter and there can't be many of you but I guess there's the theoretical chance there could be somebody listening who, uh, who may not know who he is or what his background is so we'll have a chat about that and then we'll get right into the uh, the meat of the interview Okay, so before we start the, the chat with Peter, here's a little bit of his background um, from those who, who don't know, which can only be a few of you. But Peter holds a ninth dan in karate. He started karate in 1964 in a Wadaroo club in Manchester, England, uh, which was that group was part of the British Karate Association. Uh, in 1968, Peter was a founder member of the Shukakai Karate Union, training under Kimura, um, obviously who was the, the innovator of the, the double hip power generation method. So having spent some eight years on the Great British and England karate teams in the mid-1970s, Peter fought in one of the earliest full contact events and obviously took the British title at that event. Uh, Peter's always had an interest in the practical side of the martial arts and working as a doorman in Manchester for over 10 years through the 70s and 80s clarified much of his thinking around personal conflict and honed his combative uh, approach to, uh, to violence. Uh, professionally, in addition to the martial arts, Peter's over 30 years in the security industry and now runs his own security risk management company. But for many years, he's worked around the world, covering 30-odd countries and running close protection, uh, bodyguard operations for some major international companies. And obviously, Peter's martial interests have not just been karate. He's also trained in Wing Chun, which we'll discuss in the, uh, the conversation that follows. He's also done boxing and other full contact skills and he's blended all this together into his own unique and dynamic system. And for a number of years, Peter had a, a contract to teach at what was then the National Police Training Centre. And he's taught some 12 odd police forces, uh, sometimes many times over. And I, pleasure to say I've assisted him on uh, a couple of those. Years of experience in both the security and combat arts led to him performing the British Combat Association with Jeff Thompson back in 1993. And from that, uh, we've had the international arm, you know, the, uh, the WCA, which I'm heavily involved with, that's grown out of that, and the British Combat Karate Association as well, which is the domestic karate side of uh, the BCA. So Peter's written a number of books, obviously, on and DVDs on the practical application of the martial arts and self-defense, and he's also enshrined all his knowledge and concepts in the Combat Coach Programme. And last year, Peter was elected to the position of Vice President for the English Karate Federation. So for my part, I first met Peter in the uh, 1990s. We joined up the British Combat Association. We were going along to the instructor's courses for that. They'd be run every 12 weeks or so. Me and my guys would go down to those. Uh, got to know Peter and Jeff really well through attending those. And of course, we've been to their, their seminars prior to that as well. And then uh, Peter asked me if I wanted to train with him uh, at the 
Thursday morning sessions that he has. So I went along to the Thursday morning sessions, tough, hard sessions, but you know, technically superb. Really uh, got a great deal out of those. And as I say, Peter put a bigger engine in my karate. So I considered myself a hard hitter. I considered my guys hard hitters. And then we started to train with Peter and it was, oh wow, there's a whole different level of hard that we didn't even know about. And I would suggest that most martial artists don't know about. Uh, a lot of people think they can hit hard. Well, you need to be hit by Peter and then you realise, oh, that's hard. <laughs> what I thought was hard is not hard. So, so th that and his, uh, the way that he integrates techniques and gets flow from techniques, that was really instrumental in, in what we do. And of course, you know, Peter's just broad range of knowledge, the fact that he... You know, has worked in martial arts, both points and full contact, the competitive side of things. He's obviously, you know, worked as a doorman, fully understands that side of things. He's worked with police officers, he's worked in the security field, he's got military training. So there's very few areas of, uh, of conflict and combat that Peter hasn't got experience of. So therefore, there's a fairly unique, broad perspective there that I've never really seen from anybody else. So I was really grateful for the the opportunity after training one Thursday morning we sat down we set up the mics and away we went and you can now have a listen to this and just one thing you know just to mention is that uh, unfortunately as I say I didn't quite get the mic set up exactly as I wanted so everything you can hear everything just fine but it's a little bit more tinny than I would ideally have liked but uh, stick with it because you, it's just it's a really information dense conversation and this is one that uh, I'm sure you'll get a uh, a great deal out of. So yeah, so okay, I'll shut up and I'll hand you over to Peter. Maybe just to begin, uh, Peter, if you could tell people a little bit about your history and background, how you got into martial arts, who yeah. you've trained with. Yeah, um, it started back in 1964, tender age of 15, and, and uh, I'd actually gone fencing. My father had taken me to a fencing club, and for the first week they had me prodding the wall with a foil, <laughs> which wasn't the exciting sabre slashing stuff that I'd gone for. Uh, and then in the Manchester Evening News, there was an advert, kill your friend with one easy blow. <laughs> I thought, that's for me. So as I didn't drive, my father took me down for the first one. And uh, although I was still tall at that age, 15, I mean, it must have taken half an hour to argue the case that they'd actually let me join the beginners course. Yeah. In those days, there was absolutely no children. All adults. All adults. Yeah, everybody had come from uh, Korea, World War Two. So um, they took a chance. And uh, I started, as you know, with Martin Stott and Danny Connor at a club that actually became the uh, Sabre Camp club in Manchester, uh, in a new venue in a place called Cannell Street in Manchester, which was an old conservative club, it was a sort of dance hall at the top, uh, but they brought the club from a place called Ashton Under Lyme, and uh, it was originally called the Q Shinder Choir, hmm. and I still I still had the original Q Shinder Choir membership book, but it was uh, Tatsuo Suzuki Center who asked them to change the name to Sabre Camp, he yeah. recommended it. And then um, from there, the Sado Can Clubs opened in Birmingham, in Wigan. This is Wado style, obviously. Yeah. Well, yeah, originally it was a sort of hybrid, uh, hybrid style that Martin Stott, who you know, probably about three or four years after I started, he stopped teaching altogether. Um, but he got from a guy in France called Tam Maitha, who had a bit of a sort of hybrid style that was based on Wado. But of course, then once the Japanese started coming over, we switched to what was pure white. Yeah, yeah. So that was 15. I was teaching at 16 on their beginners course and also on the demonstration team that was going around to all places to open clubs. And in those days, the belief was well, if you didn't open a place like Manchester or Liverpool or Birmingham, you wouldn't get a population <laughs> for the club. Now, of course, you can find 50 clubs in every village hall. Yeah, in a village hall. Um, so at 16, I was teaching the beginners course. Um, we were obviously fighting into club. Um, I won the first Northern British Northern Championships, and then probably 17, something like that, were the first British Championships, and they were actually club events. So we had the sort of Sabre Can clubs. We had Kobe Osaka. We had uh, the Red Triangle. So the British Championships were actually a club event. 
later on it became, of course, an association event. But I was on the teams, um, Sailor Camp Sheffield and Sailor Camp Manchester, that won the first two British championships. And that carried on until 1968, when the Northern Sailor Camp clubs had broken away from their home association, which was the British, Com the British Party Association, the BKA, which is after the British Party Federation, was probably the oldest Karate association in the UK. So the Sailor Camp clubs broke away. Um, we were looking at that time under the sort of tutelage of, of Roy Stanhope, looking for another home. Mm. Roy was inclining towards the Shotokan, but then we had a demonstration um, of the Shukakai. Yeah. And, uh, Who did that demonstration? Is it? So the demonstration was with Tommy Morris, and he bought, brought the um, Miles and Ian Burke with him. And I was really impressed with it. And fortunately, as were the other sort of senior sailor camp people at the time. And that was the start of the Shukai Karate Union. Uh, and then shortly after that, of course, uh, Kimura Center came over. So what, what impressed you about it then? You said you were really impressed by it. How was that different from just, the karate you'd done up yeah, to that point? I just, even just looking at it, even just looking at the dynamic of it, without even feeling the impact that was a consequence of that dynamic, just looking at it, and also the openness of how it was taught. Mm. Um, and that, I think, was obviously t Tommy Morris, but Tommy was a reflection of how he got that from... Yeah, his own the, teachers. The, the, yeah, his own teachers, which, of course, of Kimura and, um, and Tani. Mm. Um, and that was very much the case when, when of course, we, we fell properly under that, um, that Shukakai umbrella. The way that they taught was a totally different style altogether, different methodology, different approach, um, very much instructive. And the thing about Kimura that, that, that I always um, really took with was the intellectual intelligence approach to it. So everything was explained. We probably spent as much time with Kimura sitting in front of a blackboard where he did matchstick men, showing dynamics as we did, getting thumped by him on <laughs> polystyrene pads or gear jackets as we used to wrap up in the early days. And, um, you know, he always said feeling was believing. Mm. And it was, you know, you know, been hit by other Japanese before when we've been training on the British team or the England team or the squads. Um, but it was of a different nature altogether. Yeah. You know, the impact was heart-stopping. In fact, he broke my sternum uh, when we were doing um, a demonstration at one of the clubs. Um, I was supposed to block something as he came flying in. And he'd hit me before I realised he was flying in, so that was another learning curve. But um, so I don't think there's that thing we talk about. Is um, there's, I mean, a lot of people listen to this or think they hit hard. Yeah. And as we've talked about this hard, and there's a whole other level of hard that most people have no experience of. You know. And, and I would have said before I was ever introduced to the Shukai, and what was then what I call the that inceptive double hit, which I've still kept. Mm. Um, I would have thought I hit hard. You know, but we don't know what we don't know. Mm. And, and certainly once you've felt that and you felt the dynamic of it um, and people's own impression and belief as to how hard they hit, you know, is very seldom tested. It's very seldom put against something else as, as another yardstick. Um, and it was, it was just, it was eye-opening, you, know, you know. Moving on quickly from that, the, Move, it's probably about the 70s, 74, 75. Um, I'd started to do more of the sort of full contact. Mm. I, I pulled away from the traditional being on the British team or the British squads and England, England team and squad and wanted to move toward the full contact. My influence in that, as my influence with most things, was through Danny Connor, yeah. who had been my original uh, karate instructor going back in the early 60s. He gone to Japan, then China. A few years later, came back to the UK. You know, linked in again, and he became my sort of martial arts brother in a way. Really, um, he introduced me to all the Chinese side of things, particularly the Wing Chun, and he was one of the first people who organised the Full Contact yeah. in the UK, which was as we know it now, Full Contact Karate in those days. So we're still wearing gi bottoms and jewellery <laughs> stuff. Um, and what, what time was this roughly? What that was probably about 76, something like that. And this is kind of the inception of was, full contact yeah, in the UK, the yeah. inception of full contact. Um, and what I realised, you know, is that I got that linear 
karate style, which worked to a degree. I could knock people out, um, but I hadn't got the boxing skills. Mm. That's what I suddenly realised, that I was deficient in that. So then off we go, finding the necessary boxing skills. And in terms of boxing skills, what would you define those as? as what, what, yeah. like footwork skills, bobbing yeah. and weaving, yeah. this kind of thing? Or? The fluidity of movement. Yeah. So rather than that, you know, if you think about the old karate thing, if you did more than two moves, it was considered, you know, to be stepping outside the bounds <laughs> of what was acceptable, to be putting a flurry of blows in. But, uh, but again, as, as with all the things, whether it's Wing Chun or boxing, what I needed to do was adapt the key core elements of that around the dynamics of the Shukakai. Yeah. Uh, by that time, because I'd started working on the doors in Manchester in 1970, and then from 71 to 79-ish, uh, I'd worked on one door for eight years. I then adapted the double hip into that very close, preemptive side of things, but then adapted it again back into the martial arts, into the full contact. So even with the boxing, we've, we've got the double hip element to it, mm. we've got the dynamics. And, and I think we, we're narrowing, the, I think we're narrowing those dynamics. If we just think about it being a double hip, that's a part of the dynamics, as you all know it, because you've been doing it. It's just part of the overall dynamics that I wanted to introduce around that, mm. that core double hip. So whether it's the kick shock off the floor, whether it's the way that we integrate you know, the, the movement zones that we've been talking about earlier on. The end of one technique isn't that, it's the start of the next technique. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we're not stealing off the end of one, but we borrow the end of one technique to feed the next one. So I think that's one of the big thing that I come across is people's um, introduction to the double hip idea has been a quick YouTube video or something like that, is they, they fail to grasp the dynamic nature and how quickly you can chain techniques together with you know it flows really really well yeah and i think you know when you look at the videos i've done over the years uh and if you start with the basic um you know we're almost back to uh you know this is a football mm. you know and you know slow down coach you're going too fast <laughs> so we, you know when you look at the videos of doing about the double hip it is just the abc all we're doing is explaining the abc so of course you get the people saying oh you know that's slow that wouldn't work in real life you know, I've always maintained, and you know, we, we were talking about it earlier when we were training. I reckon with the introduction of the double hit, when you when you do it at speed, you actually end up faster than somebody who's just going to do a single. Yeah, well, that, that was that was my experience of it as well. Because um, again, I, I thought I hit hard. I thought I moved fairly quickly. I thought my students did. I then start training with you, yourself and Brian, and it becomes very quickly, as I said, there's a whole new level of hard I'd yet to experience. And I remember going back to my club after training with you guys only for a few weeks, looking at my own students, and for God's sake, hit him already. You know, it, yeah. the, the transitions, I think, are, are a big part of it that people um, don't grasp. And obviously in audio, they're not going to get it, but you know, I think it, it's, it needs to, um, that side of it, I think, is one that people, people miss, just how fast and hard you can hit with that method. Yeah. And, and also, when you talk about transitions, uh, and again, it comes back to, um, you know, are we, are we you know, and I've written about this, and I called it a bad photocopy, and I was guilty of that when I started teaching, uh, and it came from the Japanese, and one of the reasons that um, we ended up with, with what I call the bad photocopy is, is a, you know, we copied somebody, and then the next person copied that person, the next person copied that person, and nobody was prepared to explain the technique. And if you dress it right back, the reason we couldn't ever explain it to our students going back in the 60s was that the Japanese couldn't explain it to us, and they couldn't speak English. Mm -hmm. So we couldn't ask them a question. And it wasn't that they were being enigmatic, or they were being uh, dominant, or not wanting to engage. They just couldn't. Mm -hmm. So basically what they did was kick the fussy if it wasn't right, and you didn't know why it wasn't right, and then you copied them. But, the, but then, you know, I've seen the instructors do it now, won't answer questions, and the reason is, one, that they can't, because they've never broken something down into its constituent yeah. parts to be able to understand it, to teach it. But they believe that's how karate and martial arts should be taught, that you are enigmatic. You know, students shouldn't ask you questions because you're a higher pond life, which is our <laughs> you know, technical term but we copied and copied and copied. But the difference with the Shukakai was they didn't do that. Kimura broke everything down to its constituent parts and then gave it to you to say, well, there's all the bits. Make that work for you. Yeah. You know, so you, you could change things to suit your physicality, to suit your mentality almost, really. What, 
what favoured you, but you have the constituent bits. Principles remain consistent. Principles yeah. remain consistent. Because there is, I mean, that's one of the things, you know, there's, there's a, a real uh, logic to the way that you teach. And, and everything is uh, demonstrable. You know what I mean? Is it, it, the proofs in the pudding, you see. As we talked about before, I think sometimes part of the problem is that people don't test things and make assumptions. You spend all your time walking down the room hitting the air, you have no idea how hard you hit. Yeah, and that was, you know, since the, um, since the Shukakai days, where we, we you know, first of all, we were rolling just gi jackets up in, in pairs and wrapping a belt round and bashing each other with that. Then we found the ethophone, which which we then cut into square blocks and doubled up and working on that. And then, of course, with, when we started to do all the uh, full contact work, uh, working with the shields and, and focus pads. And it's only when you get on that that you realise, and when we get people coming up to train with us, as you know, we get people with some good backgrounds who are very competent in what they do, competent in what they do. But once they get on the pads, mm. you suddenly realise that, you know, basically they're doing a fresh air punch on a pad. Yeah, yeah. You know, there isn't the depth. And the challenge is always, you know, that's still the challenge for me. You know, I'm still trying to reach that ultimate and the fastest thing you can do with the most impact. Yeah. And one challenges the other. As you know, some of the heavier punches we can get, because we can get the body moving as well, tend to be slower. When we want to move faster, the challenge is to get that same integration of the body weight. And it's all about moving body weight. Uh, when we talked about transitions before, as you, as you know, the, the principle that I've tried to get over to people is overlapping transitions. So if we have a sequence of moves A, B, C, D, we don't do them as A, B, C. A and B overlap, B and C overlap, mm. and C and D might overlap. And that's where we're using the dynamics at the end of one to give us the start of the next one. So we don't do, say, a punch that we got, you know, we build ourselves up to the kick. The end of the punch, you pull back from the punch, is actually giving us the counter rotation. Yeah. So the, so the top half counter rotates the bottom, and the bottom counter rotates the top. So if we're doing, let's say, a defensive punch on the move, we don't stop to do that. You know, we, we can use the bottom half, the bottom hemisphere of ourselves to give us the dynamic of moving and translating that movement to the impact at the top. I remember uh, Brian once described it to me as fighting on the half beat, which yeah. I thought was because, again, most people, when they do combinations, they're not combinations, they're individual techniques put end-to-end. Yeah. End. Yeah. You know, it's not joined up writing. No, you know, no, it's yeah. not. And that's, that's what we've always, you know, my principle about um, about techniques is if we if we use the analogy of an alphabet you know we've got a punch as an A uh, blocks of B blocks of C and the way we've been taught is that very Japanese scholastic military way of teaching that we'd have an A we're having a B and a C um, so then you, you you put those letters together in a sentence you put them together in a in a paragraph you put them together in a chapter you know and I look at traditional karate and if we think about, you know, what we've written so far with that, we've got to the cat sat on the mat. <laughs> it's about that sophisticated. It's certainly not a work of Shakespeare. And yet we've got the constituent parts that we could write far better with. Yeah. And that's where we start to get the overlapping transitions in combinations and have the impact and have the speed and have tactical awareness at the same time. Yeah. You know, we can't lose any of that, all, all of it. Um, and when we look at uh, traditional martial arts, when Jeff and I started the BCA, the criticism's always been, oh, well, you know, you're criticising karate. Because, no, we're not. Uh, you know, as you well know, we still do karate. We yeah. still don't do kata anymore. Never had the time to really carry on with that, with the development of other things I had to do. Um, but it's, it's the box concept that I've, that I've always tried to work on, which is I've got my big box, which has everything in it. It's got the boxing, it's got the wind churn, it's got the full contact, it's got the crossing. But then out of that, alongside that, I've got the context boxes. I've mm. got the door, I've got the streets, I've got self-defense, I've got close protection. I've got tick your own competition. I've got knockout competition. And out of my big box, I can dip into it and I can take certain things that I can put in those specific boxes. And and we're not throwing the baby out with bathwater, which is what people think we're doing with karate or criticising it. What we're saying is, there's the hole, but only part of that, I have to pass yeah. that 
to fit in a specific box. I think that that failure to grasp the differing needs of context and yeah. working your objective is, is yeah. huge. So yeah. you maybe want to expand on that yeah. box context. We take it so we're talking high level martial arts when we're talking yeah. about that explosive snatcher transitions. Yeah. So we take it right back maybe to the self defence box. Yeah. Yeah, what, what would do you feel would transpose across there? Yeah, yeah. one of one of the things that. that the reason I started working with Dora in 1970, so I started martial arts in 64, I was on the British and England teams, and I still didn't think it would it would work for me. Mm. I, I got the impact, I got the double hit, but I was, you know, uh, if you think about getting on the tatami and we were in a competition, my opponent's a good six feet away, or whatever it is in metres these days, yeah. but I've got time to get in the stands, move around, get out of the way. Um, and you know, I can't go out starting fights on the street, so working on the door was my culture dish <clears throat> to say what will work. And the thing I realised very quickly was I knew too much. Mm. So at a time when I needed to have one or two key things, I just had too much in my armoury. Uh, so I had this technical log jam, which is a bit like the you know the um, egg timer where I tip an egg mm. timer up and up eight million grains of sand don't go through the neck at once. One or two things go through. What I got is my 8 million techniques in the top and the technical log jam. And what I realized was that I also had no clue what the other person was going to do. So I had 20 question marks. Is he going to hit? Is he going to strike? Is he going to kick? Is he going to try and take me down? Is he going to poke me in the eye? And then I'm trying to match all those options with should I block, should I strike, yeah. should I strike, should I... And it suddenly dawned on me that preemption was the only thing I had at a certain time when I could say, this person is sufficiently aroused to kick off. It was up to me then to make sure that we finished it because a fight's a lottery. The whole thing about working the door and, and, and being preemptive was that, that it's a bit like gun smoke, you know, or, or Dodge City. There's always going to be a faster gun. I could fight, I could scrap, but there's always going to be somebody who was better at fighting than I am. So don't fight them. Yeah, so yeah. don't fight them. How do I know who that person is? Who's going to be a faster go? So what I became very adept at was making sure it didn't turn into a fight. Yeah. So preempting and preventing that happening. And, and the, the, the benefit of that as well is people will say, are oh, you taking a cheap shot? No, I'm not. What I'm trying to do is also, and when I, I jump onto this, uh, the subject of, of teaching the police and teaching other uh, frontline um, operations. When I was teaching the police, all I was teaching was preemptive strikes and impact development. Yeah. That's it. Plus the associated tactical things. And you've been there, you know, we've, we've been teaching the police, so you know it's the same mm. message. Don't change the message. Um, but the the beauty of the preemptive strike is that you're going to choose what you hit, and that way you can get the massive return and benefit that you want with the least injury potential. Yeah. So we're not punching to the face, that might be a slap. We're impacting to the centre of mass to just simply disable that nervous system. So we're mitigating injuries, gaining maximum control, and you're staying in charge of it. Mm. If it turns into a fight, you hit anything that's available. You know, yeah. phone, nose, teeth, just... But the point is to avoid finding yourself in a reactive situation, you yeah. see. Because yeah. I think that sometimes, like, I see it a lot, certainly, like, the traditional karate world, is people list out a list of scenarios and have a response for every one of those scenarios. So yeah. this is how we'll defend a hook, this is how we'll defend a headbutt, this, and as you say, too much information to process. Yeah. Plus the fact, and we test this all the time, we do it, we do it on courses, we do it with people, it, it, it's all predicated on one simple, very easy to remember thing, action beats reaction mm. and touching distance. The person who started at touching distance will win it. It, it works when even the person knows that you, you're going to say, I'm going to, you, you react to this, you block this. So even if you tell them they can't do it because action beats reaction, if you think about it when the person doesn't even know that that's going to happen, they've yeah. actually got no chance of blocking. So you could be the best blocker in the world, but you simply won't have chance to do it. You can't factor it in a touching distance. The person who starts it wins it. Yeah. And, and I spent eight years on one door for probably six years of that, four nights a week mm. on the same door. So, you know... This is empirically tested knowledge we're talking about, yeah. Empirically tested. Yeah. I don't have a theory about things. I've got practical empirical background support for it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And so, I mean, so, but that, that, I mean, one thing that I, mean, that I know from training with you, that uh, 
Um, we do work blocking, we do work defensive yeah. things, but that would fall more into the, the martial arts yeah. box, you know yeah. what I mean? So there's an opportunity to block. So if you, you know, if you have somebody, people will say, oh, well, you know, if, if I'm in a conflict, you know, I'll make sure I've got distance. You know, that's coming from somebody who hasn't been there. Mm. Because first of all, how can you assume that you have distance behind you? You know, and this is where we're doing the police training. You know, they do the police training in a big open gym, and yet the next time they're attacked, they've gone through a door in somebody's hallway, they ain't got anywhere to go. Yeah. You're on a pavement, you can't step back onto the road, you've got you come out of the car, you've got the. So, first of all, you're presuming you have somewhere to go, and second, you're presuming somebody who's aroused and aggressive is going to do that from five feet, and they don't. Yeah. Somebody who's aggressive fills that space. You know, if, if you allow them to get within that touching distance, well, it's probably going to be all over for you. Yeah. yeah. So, you, you you know, distance is hard to control. You just have to make sure, and, and Jeff's analogy of the fence is perfect for it. You know, once they're past that fence, you, they're in your personal space and it's a danger area. And we were talking like during the 1990s when you and Jeff kind of started off the, the BCA. I mean, this was, mm. it was like, rep, uh, what's it called, blasphemous almost. Yeah. I think it's much more widely accepted now. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about how you met Jeff. See, I think I remember reading an interview. I think it was maybe in Fighters magazine or something like that. Is that when you first met? Or? Yeah, no, I was, I was um, at that time writing. I was training with Bob Sykes, as you know, who's mm-hmm. the editor of Martial Arts Illustrated. We were training with, with Tony's brother every week, four or five times a week. And I was writing for MAI, and um, Bob said, I've just had this uh, half a book sent <laughs> by a martial artist who's also a doorman. And he said, it's not my bag, but with, with it being, the, it's all about door work, yeah. would, you, would you have a read of it? So, and it was half of Watch My Back yeah. before it was finished. And I was only into it about five pages, rolling around on the floor, <laughs> recognising absolutely everything that he was talking The truth about. of the yeah. message, yeah. So I was really intrigued with this. And, and, and I thought, no, this, you know, I want to write about this. So I phoned Jeff, of course I didn't know, and said, look, would you, would you come and meet me up in Huddersfield? Let's have a coffee. And um, said how much I enjoyed the first half of it, and we, you know I'd really look forward to it, and I'll do an article. On it. But we we got on really well, and it was the same time where I just I'd been the chief instructor of the British Karate Association. I'd wanted to start the self defence element, the practical side of it, but I didn't want it to be within the BKA. Yeah. It was very much a traditional karate thing. So I was thinking about starting. Um, separate thing, which of course became the British Combat Association, BCA, and then just Jeff kept popping into my mind, and I just thought, Jeff will go somewhere, he's just definitely setting up on that track, yeah. and it will, it will serve both our interests, mine to have Jeff with me, and Jeff to have the BCA as a platform, yeah. phoned him up and said, would he be interested in starting the BCA with me? Yeah. Add water and stand back. <laughs> that was that was like the blue tips. I think the influence of obviously you two, and then obviously that organisation has just been huge. Certainly in British martial arts, you know, what I mean, just swept through, yeah. and then from there um, globally as well. I would uh, I would say, you know, it, 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 and I, I, I see that um, things like like preemption, where once was a dirty word, especially in, in traditional communities, is now more widely expected. What I do see a little bit of, though, is people giving it lip service with no depth. So thing, things like, um, Jeff would talk a lot about, when you would as well, about fear and yeah. performance under stress. And now people say things like, well, don't forget about fear, and I think they cover the topic. Yeah. Same with de-escalation. You yeah. talk your way out of it if you can. No yeah. conversation about how to do that. Yeah. And another one, which maybe we can touch on a little bit, is like the legalities. Yeah. So people often do, you know, don't forget about the yeah. law, mm. and then that's all they do. Or they give bad information or false information. So I know it's part of your teaching when you work in that self-defense box. Yeah. Um, the legalities of it are always a key part of the, of, of the process. So maybe your thoughts on the law generally and how that people should make sure they yeah. cover that area. Again, it, um, it was conditioned by, first of all, working on the door, because one of, one of the, the key things you have to have and everything is so interlinked, it's hard to start at one point here and then mm. try and bring the other things in. But uh, when you're standing in front of somebody, you know this is only going one way. The person's getting that aroused, you know they're building themselves up to attack. 
And what you have over your head all the time, and I suddenly realised it was over mine was consequences. It's like a flashing mm. light, consequences. And that is, if I preempt, is, is, have I got a right to do it? Will it work? You know, will it cause injury? Will it cause this? And all that delays you actually moving to action. And one of the things you link that with is where stress and the physiological changes, both the psychological and the endocrine system changes. One of the problems when we're under stress is decision-making is one of the things that drops off the cliff. Mm. So the more stressed we are, the harder it is to make a decision to do something. And that's where I'd invented action triggers, mm. which was associating a technique with a word. And I realized that what I was trying to do was make a decision to move with all these different things. And what I had to do was, was make sure that all those boxes which had consequence in, I had resolved before yeah, I got yeah. to that. So I'd resolved the impact. I knew I could knock an elephant out if I needed to, so that was fine. I knew if I picked my spot, um, I was going to mitigate injury potential because I put it center of mass or it would be a slap. So residual injuries were kept to a minimum. The other one was the legal side of it. Mm. What was the legal requirement? What, what did I have to know to make sure that that didn't become a stopper for me at the time? And it's strange, even teaching the police, when I was doing the police instruction at national police training, police officers weren't aware what the law was about yeah. reaction. You know, if well, I was with you, that's yeah, when that yeah, happened, yeah. yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> so you, you're looking at the police audience, you know, what's the, what's the uh, case you would use to support preemption or the amount of impact? How much can you impact? Um, well, <laughs> and what, what everybody confuses it with is what management expect you're going to do and what the law says yeah. you can do. When I, was, when I was teaching for the prison service, I was teaching for the prison service headquarters control and restraint, and they had a big problem that <clears throat> management wanted them to use CNR. To defend them. It's a control and restraint, just in case people are familiar with the terminology. They were discouraging uh, striking. So if you were a lone prison officer on a ring and you were attacked, you're supposed to twist somebody's arm at the back. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me, when CNR is a team job anyway, minimum three, maybe more people. And we actually like, helped them to make the case to have both a CNR team operational package and a self-defense package, yeah. which then have things like striking, elbows, all that, that we would teach you. Yeah, so the difference between doing your job and an officer yeah. safety. Officer yeah, safety. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, management can quite rightly say, these are the constraints, whether it's the health service, the prison service, these are what we want you to use operationally. However, management can't say, but we, can't, we don't want you doing this, because mm. if you feel your your safety or your life's in danger, then the law allows you to do what you have to do. Yeah. So the idea is you familiarise yourself with the law so eventually you can forget about yeah. it. Is, yeah, that, is, that, that, is that the message? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, I don't have that as a stopper, as a consequence that's holding me back from doing what I know should yeah. be at the time. Because I think one of the things that, uh, you know, uh, that often comes up is this uh, better to be judged by 12 than carried by 6. Yeah. Yeah. And Rory Miller has this very accurate point, talking from a US perspective, of course, but I think it applies the world over, that that's a false binary choice. Yeah. The, the your only options are prison or death. You can effectively defend yourself yeah. in a way that keeps you out of prison as well. You yeah, uh, but obviously, if you're familiar with the law, it reassures you, yourself of that, uh, yeah. that fact. Yeah. And, you know, in support of that again, empirically, I, I am accepted and have worked as an expert witness at um, um, county court. You know, hmm. Crown court level, so I've worked on the murder trial, I've worked on predominantly the um, expert witness I did was for the defence of police officers. You know, so I'd act as an expert witness in case where police officers were being prosecuted hmm. for um, inappropriate use of force, which in most cases it never was. Yeah. You know, it was just not understood at the time. And you would think it's strange that the police authority actually doesn't understand the law sufficient enough not to actually prosecute itself in the first place yeah doing what they needed to do at the time yeah. so um again i've had to stand in court and justify i've been in a solicitor's office where i've had to remind a police officer what he was talking about <laughs> the law you know before he got on his feet in court so um and then we wonder why civilians get themselves in trouble yeah when, when people who are if you like guardians of the law 
Don't aren't really familiar with it as <laughs> they, they should be. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Um, uh, the one thing just as we talked about history, uh, we mentioned it in passing, but we didn't go into any depth. It was the Wing Chun yes. side of things. Yeah. So maybe yeah. um, why you got into that, who you trained with. Yeah, it was, again, uh, you know, for, for much of my martial arts, it's been a happy coincidence in a way that when Danny Connor came back from, from the Far East, uh, brought back with him, you know, the Wing Chun, the connections. Obviously, the Tai Chi was one of the main things he brought back. But that, 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 that great knowledge. And um, one of the, the issues that I'd found working the door was distance. Yeah. The karate didn't give me that, which, which of course, the bunkai from the kata does, of course. Mm. Yeah, I, I see that very much like Wing Chun, jumping across subjects. But uh, what I didn't have was that comfort of working at touching distance mm. and trapping and um, tying people up and, and the sensitivity that you get so I can talk with my hands now and, and I know full well that those are my outer um, feelers to, to, to trap and, and deflect um, but I was but Danny was, we used to do the wing show and I, the first training I did was with Alan Lamb mm. who's now in the States and Alan great UK Wing Chun exponent. But then uh, Simon Lau used to come up to, to uh, Oriental World in Manchester. It was Danny's Emporium. Um, so I had private lessons with Simon, Simon Lau. Um, but also then Sam Kwok. I was Sam Kwok's first indoor student. At right, right. The time. He was still um, not professional, fully professional in Wing Chun over in Blackpool. And so with Sam Kwok, and then Danny and I spent six weeks in Hong Kong and China training with um, Yip Chun. Mm. Yeah. And Yip Chun, of course, had been over here in training. And, um, and then just carried on. But again, with the Wing Chun, I essentially just wanted that Chi Sao out of it, but then to adapt it. like everything. Yeah, it became part of your... Yeah, so to, to bring it in for those context areas of getting to, to get that to fit in with things. Well, no, even in the sparring, you make use of it when sparring at a distance, you know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah, um, yeah not really. Um, it, it fitted for the door. That was that was what I needed for the door. To and you felt the karate it. was lacking at that range. Yeah, right? The karate wasn't. What I knew of karate was lacking at that time because we, we, we didn't do the bunkai, you know, we did one step and three step sparring, but, you know, it's all prearranged. But I hadn't got that confidence of working at two or three feet. Mm. It wasn't preemption. It had to move people, trap people, lock the hands down, which the Wing Chun gave them that, that extra comfort. Yeah. You know. um, and we still use it now, you know, as you know, playing yeah. this morning. Yeah. Well, so that, that's the one thing I know you and I often talk about as well is um, this idea of, you know, people sometimes have this idea of keeping things pure and then not adapting something no matter how functional it is. Yeah. I always like Ed Parker's line about that when he said uh, pure karate is when pure fist meets pure face. I thought yeah. that's a... Nice, uh, simplistic way of putting it. But m m maybe just a little bit on your thoughts on this idea of um, uh, not getting locked within traditional dogma. Because I know, I mean, everything you do is measured by effect. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I think that's back to we don't know what we don't know. Mm. Um, and, and we see less of it now, don't we, where people are locked into dogma. You know, people still get caught with that... Um, territorial style thing but we know that behind that is a political agenda it's a power money mm. territorial agenda that locks people in you know if they were truly honest they're not locking people in because they have a belief about that's what that's yeah. right they're locking people in because that allows the hot that keeps them into an association into a club you know it's i'm not saying it's like the moon is but you know it you know, people need to have decompression when, when they're leaving a big style association sometimes. So there are other agendas going on all the time. But, you know, f f f we're, again, mentioned it this morning, didn't we? There might come a time where we have a thing called karate. We yeah. don't have shotgun karate or story yeah. karate or goju. Uh, and we move towards that. You know, we have, a, we have this with a small c, a Catholic karate, where... It's open to all sorts of influences. And, you know, it's like the duck. You know, it, it, it quacks like a duck, walks like a duck. So it's a duck. Mm -hmm. you know? And we know karate when we see it. Um, my thing has always been, because of how we train, this morning we train in shorts, tracky bottoms, yeah. t-shirt, uh, and people would say, oh, that's kickboxing. 
Now, if we'd done that in the Gila, so, <laughs> so you know, so how you dress almost influences yeah, defines what, the art. Defines what yeah. defines the art. And we know full well that we've got two arms, two legs. We're kicking and punching. Um, and at the end of the day, we can almost call it what we want. You know, yeah. and that's not to say that, that karate becomes something else. I just think karate has wider premises than, than, a, than some but, styles defined. And I think, you know, we, we talked about that this morning as well. Traditionally, that was like Funakoshi objected to being pigeonholed as shoulder can. He didn't yeah. want that label. So it's maybe that we've, we, we were like that. Yeah. We've gone through this period of trying to separate the strands, if you like, and then we're maybe going back to something that's more, yeah. ironically, more traditional as we get more modern. Yeah. And, it, and it's what influences change. So if you look at shoulder can, you know, uh, what, what influence change? Where did Roundhouse come from? Mm. Well, it wasn't an original. Not right. But yeah. a person introduced it. So, so an individual introduced a technique to it. So, how now can you say you can't change that? Yeah. You, you're only a person. How on earth can you change that? You're an individual. <laughs> well, hang on. How do you think we got there in the first place? You know, every individual has an influence on that. Um, so that can't stop us. You know, karate and martial arts isn't frozen in amber. You know, it's dynamic. If you look at any sport where performance has has improved over the years, it's because it's been prepared to adopt science, prepared to be dynamic, to, to take on change, without fundamentally changing the sport. Yeah. It's still the same sport. It's just the outcomes are better, the training's better, the science is better. Karate... No, it's but, uh, it is one of the strange it's a few physical pursuits where people will uh, look for other criteria other than performance like Dick Fosbury starts doing his Fosbury flop and yeah. it wasn't hygiene was going well that's not traditional no no, no they were all like that's better so we'll all yeah, do that that's not hygiene that's not hygiene went over backwards you know, it's like now you know who do a straddle jump you know, yeah just now I'm not saying that you know karate is unique in the sense that you know we can't we can't always judge it by outcome. We were saying that this morning, mm. but um, we were saying it in a negative way about karate is that it can be a hiding place. Whereas if we want an outcome from it, there isn't a hiding place. So if we said we want impact, we want effect from this technique, we do it. There's no hiding place for that. Yeah. We have an outcome. We're aiming to make this the hardest technique we've ever done. Yeah, it's demonstrable, it's isn't demonstrable. it? Yeah. You know, feelings believing back to Kimura again. However, if we move away from that and say, we just want this to look good, well, for me, it's an empty box. That's, that's, that's always been my concept about when I look at uh, modern competition class, if we're not careful. It's great and it looks nice, but it's lacking effect. Mm. You know? and, and I go back to when, when you know, Kimura was, was here and you know, we were training closely with him. You know, if he was going to do a kata, we all move back to him. <laughs> we all got frightened watching him do kata yeah. because the intent and the content in it, you knew if you got in the way, you know, you, you, you'd hear the sirens yeah. and the, the ambulance. Yeah, there's no authority to it. It's not just pretty. There's, there's no authority, authority to it. it. You know, but the, the aesthetic, the structure was perfect, but it had content in the middle of it. You know? and, but if we move away from wanting an outcome, karate can be a hiding place. Yeah. You know, we can make we can defend it against outcomes if we say, oh well, it's not you know the stance isn't right and that's not right. As you know, we talked about that this morning that people are saying, oh no, it'd be better if his stance was. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm not saying it because it's me, but I hit harder with both feet off the ground than most people hit with two feet. Yeah, it's weight transfer, isn't it? I think the card gets put before the horse with stances. These are postures you move to and through. Yeah. <laughs> They're not objectives of the no, in themselves. No, no, no. <coughs> and I come back to the same thing. You know, again, if we go back to the late 1800s, where we can look at the earliest photographs, say, of, of, of Okinawa or Japanese masters doing it. They're in a stance. You know, and the thing was, gosh, we'd best not move out of that once <laughs> we've seen it. But had we seen a video taken at the time of them doing that sequence of techniques, what we found is in three seconds that have moved through five stances. Yeah. You know, they would have transitioned to, from one stance to the next one. They weren't fixed in one position. Yeah. You know. 
I have this thing I do at the seminars, I call it my golf swing cap. Yeah. So I do a golf swing in the way, you know, a captain would do it. You've got the back swing, the contact and the follow through. Yeah. So I freeze frame the three postures and say, but no one hits a ball like that. Yeah. You know, the idea is that you move move, yeah. move through them, you see. And that was the point, you know, we talked about this morning. That, that's uh, that's analogy. Yeah, yeah well, it works for people, I think, as well. And uh, I, was, I was talking about Steve Williams, who obviously trains under yourself as well, incredibly powerful hitter, you know, amazing power. And I remember putting a video online of him doing hook punches and where the guy commented that his stance was off. And as you were saying, it's, well, yeah. you hold the pads for Steve and try yeah. and say anything's off. Do you know yeah. what I mean? The guy almost rips your arms out the socket. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it goes back to the idea of, of measuring by effect mm. rather than being some arbitrary yeah. criteria. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, the, you know, the, the other side to that is, the other challenge is that we still want it to look aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We still want to try and make it look right. But it can still look right when it isn't hasn't got that formality. Mm. We're not clumsy within the way. And that people will say, oh well you're off balance. You know, and the, you know, my argument on that is nothing's off balance if I intended to do it. Yeah. So like we're doing this morning, we're actually falling into techniques, you know, reaching and falling over and hitting that, that point of loss of balance. But we intend to do it. We know exactly where we are throughout so, the entire movement. So we're not yeah. losing our balance, although we're throwing ourselves into it, then recover with a sort of half step. Um, balance is where you end up on your backside. You didn't intend to be there. Yeah, yeah. So um, again, people are caught with that um, A B C. You know, the school child view of what karate and martial. Well, I think is when you've got high level function, it naturally has an aesthetic. Yeah. But giving something an aesthetic doesn't naturally give it function. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. if you pursue the function to a high level, okay. yeah, it, it will end up looking um, uh, neat yeah. and, and functional and effective and everything else. You yeah. say, so. It doesn't have to look ugly to be effective. No. It doesn't have to look clumsy. Well, to be I think there's sometimes that assumption as well, because when I've taught, mentioned to people that you know, you, you're better measuring by effect, there's almost an assumption that that will be an ugly technique, you know, which is obviously, well, shouldn't be the case anyway. No, you know. no, it doesn't have to be. It's well. probably more revealing about what they know about their own aesthetic as well, you see. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think we've covered loads in that, Peter. Is there anything in particular you'd like to, to add or any points that we've... Uh, no, I mean, just, just as we know, you know, hearing it is difficult to translate that to an image. Seeing a still picture is difficult to translate to an image. And even seeing a video sometimes, it's difficult to translate to how that feels. Yeah, yeah. You know, to be on the receiving well, I, end. Or... I, I, I can remember vividly the first time you hit me because we're in the BCA offices now, right, yeah. and it was the old BCA offices, and I visited. It was my first book. Right. Uh, Dawn was typeset before me. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about the double hip, and you said, "Have you ever felt it?" And I said, "No, I haven't." So I remember you um, hitting me a couple of times lightly. Yeah. L- l- air quotes lightly yeah. and then getting into the car and thinking you know I can feel that on my insides through the, the ether form so you know again unless people have felt it mm. I don't think they can get it you know and I know like when we've done seminars people actually seek out to get hit by you just so they can yeah. ooh <laughs> that's what it feels like yeah. yeah and it's and really that's only part of those overall dynamics that we're introducing isn't it mm. you know, but, but um, yeah no it's good yeah, excellent. Oh, well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, Appreciate it. Great. Well, I'm sure you enjoyed that. And as, as I mentioned at the start, there's just so much information in that podcast. Uh, so many topics touched upon. And I, I, I would obviously recommend that you're listening to it uh, a couple of times. As, a, as I said, you know, Peter has kindly offered to answer any specific questions you've got. So if anyone's got any specific topics you'd like to hear Peter talk about, you know, whether it's the law or any self-defense issues or anything like that, you know, I'll make sure that uh, me and Peter get together um, sometime in the future and chat those issues through for you. So you know, feel free to email me them. You know, so Ian, I-A-I-N, at Ian, spelled the same way, Abernethy.com. Uh, Ian at IanAbernethy.com. Or you can contact me via the website as well, so... Um, if you go to ianabernethy.com there's a contact uh, us page there in the form so. but yeah if you drop those questions to me I'll, I'll make sure I get them put to Peter and we'll record that conversation with both of the microphones on this time um, so yeah so thank you very much for, for listening uh, thanks to everyone who contributed to the top 10 podcasts thanks so much for your support of the podcast generally as I say I put lots of you know articles together forum posts YouTube videos love the podcasts one of my favourite things to do really do enjoy putting them together 
Um, so thank you so much to everyone who's supporting them. And if you could be so kind as to leave good reviews, I don't want the bad ones, just the good ones. Uh, if, you could, <laughs> if you could leave some good reviews on iTunes or wherever it is that you happen to uh, find this podcast, you know, it all helps and I, uh, I really appreciate your support. Okay, so that's enough for this month. I'll be back with uh, another podcast uh, soon. And until then, I'll um, speak to you soon.